This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm Ashley Elfervik from ABA Publishing, and I'll be today's host. In this episode, I speak with Mark Edward Herman, the author of The Curmudgeon's Guide to Practicing Law. Mark practiced at the relatively small firm of Steinhardt and Falconer in San Francisco when he moved to Cleveland and joined the international law firm Jones Day, where he was a partner when he wrote the original edition of this book. Mark is now the Deputy General Counsel of Aon PLC. Today, he talks with us about the inner workings of the curmudgeonly law partner, though the true curmudgeon is, of course, a figment of his imagination. Mark, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. So in the last chapter, you describe this book as purely a labor of love. So what made you want to do another labor of love with this second edition? Oh, I'm, I'm afraid that the second edition isn't as noble as the first. It, it's not quite a, a labor of love. The ABA, some people at the ABA looked at the book and told me that there were some small parts that they thought were outdated. And so I went through the book and I found, a, I mean, the book was only written in 2006, so it doesn't feel that terribly old, but there were some anachronisms in it. For example, in 2006, people use a word that nobody nobody knows the meaning of today. The word is library. <laughs> so we had to go through the book and take out every time we said library or go to the library to do some research because that simply isn't true now 13 years later and we you know we just went through and got rid of it or there was a contraption back in 2006 that was that dominated the market and everybody knew what it was and today nobody knows the meaning of it anymore it was called a blackberry Right. So we had to go through. We had to cross out BlackBerry and write in iPhone every time we found it. So we got rid of those anachronisms. And I got uh, David Latt from Above the Law to write a new foreword. I wrote a new afterword. And then there were a few other things that I either polished up or or errors that had been uh, killing me for the last 13 years. Like I wrote that a trickle of work would become an avalanche. And of course, that was completely wrong. A trickle becomes a torrent. It doesn't become an avalanche. So thank God, after 13 years, I managed to fix that too. But anyway, stuff like that was what was the, the genesis of the second edition. Definitely. And I noticed um, some updates too about you know uh, legal research online and things like that. Um, a significant amount of time, both in the first and second editions, is dedicated to talking about writing skills. Are writing skills something that you think get students good grades in law school and also succeed in big law? Or do you think there's a discrepancy between what does well in law school and what does well in the real world of law? I think law schools, for good reason, teach you to be too heavy-handed in stuff that you write because it's easier to strip out the heavy-handedness and write things that, that are lighter in practice than it would be if you were taught to write things that were very light and were then told to make it heavier in practice. But at law schools, they don't tell you how ferociously busy judges are. So you can write a 15 or 20 page memo or, or brief on some very basic principle of law because your teacher cares and will read it and will think about it. And that's the way things work in law school, whereas the practice of law is 
the judge isn't going to give, uh, you know, in a, in a busy motions court, isn't going to give five minutes of attention to your brief. So if you're writing a 15 or 20 page epic about some small issue of law, you are going to lose. So, so you have to lighten things up for purposes of real life in a way that you don't in law schools. But, but as I said, I think law schools do a reasonably good job. It's just they teach you to be too heavy-handed, and you can be taught how to be light, and you can also develop confidence, just understanding that writing lighter is not bad. It feels less legalistic, but it's okay, and it wins, and that's the name of the game. So we have to train people how to break their law school habits, but in a way that's relatively easy to break, I think. Definitely. And um, in terms of kind of breaking old habits or coming up with completely new ones, um, the book also demystifies depositions and defending depositions. So what do associates most often struggle with when uh, locked in a deposition room for seven hours? For depositions, I think the problem is that nobody ever tells you that the basics are very easy. And there are a very few simple rules that you can tell people that will help them just survive their first deposition. Like when you're working with a document, mark, identify, authenticate, right? Mark this document as Exhibit 7. Please identify Exhibit 7 and then a question to authenticate it. Is that your signature on the third page of Exhibit 7? And then you can go on and ask every question that you want to. But nobody tells beginning lawyers when you're working with a document, mark, identify, authenticate, then do everything else. So they're just basic rules that Certainly when I was in law school and still today at law firms, people don't teach you. So there's some things that you can just overcome the problems by telling people the simple rules. There are other things that are terribly hard, like uh, asking simple questions. I mean, there are people who have been practicing law for 35 years and still use double negatives in their questions and still use compound questions and are still asking questions and the answers don't make any sense when you try to read them back at trial. So there are some things that people will necessarily struggle with for a long time, but there are other things that you can just say, these are the simple rules and you can give people confidence that they'll survive their first deposition. Definitely. And um, one thing that you definitely do a lot of in the book is really giving people the advice that they might not get in law school or uh, be told when they first start out at a law firm. One thing that usually does get a lot of focus for young lawyers is how to dress. But your chapter eight simply says, I don't give a damn what you wear. Just make sure the brief is good. I definitely appreciated that. Can we unpack that a little bit? When I wrote the first edition of the book, both of my editors at the ABA wrote back to say that I could not leave that chapter alone, that I had to drop a footnote saying uh, maybe what the curmudgeon says is a little too strident, or I should add a few more paragraphs saying, although the curmudgeon believes this, many other people don't believe it. So I consulted with my my primary consultant on the book, my then 15-year-old son, Jeremy, and I asked him to take a look at what the ABA editors had to say. And after reading it, he goes, Dad, but then it wouldn't be funny anymore. And I went with Jeremy because I thought if we fixed it up to make it more accurate, it wasn't going to be funny anymore. I will say that once the book came out, that chapter was both the most criticized and the most quoted as hysterically funny in the book reviews. That is, many people said, 
as an example of the humor of their curmudgeon, when asked about dress for success, I don't give a damn what you wear, just make sure the brief is good, what a riot. And many other people said their curmudgeon is wrong only in chapter eight, where he says it doesn't make any difference what you wear, and women shouldn't be doused in perfume, and you got to make sure you dress the right way, and you should look professional, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's right. I think that chapter, because it is overstated, is should legitimately be criticized because it's a little overstated and should legitimately be held out as pretty darn funny because it is pretty darn funny. And I'll just say that the curmudgeon himself is a very uh, result-oriented guy. He cares about the quality of the work. So for the curmudgeon, it makes no difference what you wear. If the brief is good, the deposition is good, the appeal is argued right, the case is tried right, you know, he, he would tell you, wear a suit to court. Everybody wears a suit to court, right? Because the curmudgeon would care about that. But other than that, the curmudgeon really doesn't care about what you wear. But that's just the curmudgeon. And I think in the real world, probably uh, uh, people do care about what you wear. So you, you have to realize that you're speaking to one kind of mentor, not every mentor, when you're hearing what the curmudgeon has to say. And um, speaking of some of the feedback you got on that first edition and some of those chapters, um, what are some of the most amusing positive or negative feedback and comments you've received about the first curmudgeon's guide? I think the funniest was somebody who said, what do you get when you cross Clarence Darrow, Groucho Marx, and Vlad the Impaler, the curmudgeon's guide to practicing law? because there's a certain amount of truth to that. But the negative was really from people who took the curmudgeon too seriously. He is not a kindly avuncular mentor. He is a guy who takes a baseball bat and beats you about the head and shoulders until you get it right. And if you take him too seriously, you are offended by the curmudgeon because although he's telling you everything you need to know to practicing to practice law, he's not telling you those things in a kindly avuncular way. And once you realize that he's a caricature and this is written a little bit with tongue in cheek, he's much easier to take. But people who didn't take him as a caricature uh, uh, say that the book is a little heavy handed, which is probably right. Frankly, as the author, I had to tone the book down in a couple of places because I decided that I couldn't take that crazy old coot for another chapter. And so I had to strip out some of the adjectives or put in stuff for comic relief because over time, he's a little hard to take. But hopefully at the end of the line, I have a mix between the guy telling you everything you have to do and a little bit of humor thrown in there. Absolutely. Before we move on, we're going to take a quick commercial break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Inner Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. We're speaking with Mark, the author of The Curmudgeon's Guide to Practicing Law. One thing you kind of did to temper the voice of the curmudgeon was also bring on the voice of the curmudgeonly assistant, which you wrote with your longtime secretary, Laura Bazelli. So how can new lawyers form a partnership that's effective and most importantly, respectful with their assistants? 
I think the key to working with assistants is remembering that everyone is a person. So you should treat them all as persons. Law firms, not so not so much really in corporations, but in law firms, things are very hierar- hierarchical. Everybody knows who the partners are. Everybody knows who the associates are. Everybody knows who the characters that are neither associates nor partners, counselors, senior counselor, of counselor, staff lawyers, paralegal secretaries, and there is a strict hierarchy that people pay attention to. And in working with your assistant, you just ought to remember that despite the hierarchy, everybody is a person. So treat them all with respect. And as for your assistant in particular, let them know enough about what's going on in your professional life that they're really able to help you. They're not just sitting at a desk doing a function, but they also have to know a little bit about what you're doing in your life so that they're able to help you when the phone rings and you're not available or or whatever it is they're tending to. Definitely. And um, thank you for expanding on that. So speaking of law firm hierarchies, you say that you could just as easily write a book called How to Be a Crappy Partner. Can we hear some more tidbits that might be included in such a sequel? Oh, oh, that wouldn't be a book. That would be a multi-volume series. There are a lot of things about partners that offend associates, and I think associates don't write it because it would be career limiting to say the things that offended you. And partners don't write it because after a few years as a partner, you forget just how much it annoyed you when you were an associate, when they did these things to you. So, so setting your mind back to remember what it felt like is very hard. But for example, the hurry up and wait syndrome, right? Get, get, get me the draft by Monday morning. You have to get it to me by Monday morning. And somebody works all weekend on it. And then you don't pick it up for two weeks after that. I mean, that drives associates crazy. And it is the epitome of being a crappy partner. Or for example, uh, you two partners should not give me conflicting edits. I can't have one of you telling me, put the following seven arguments into the introduction and the other one telling me the introduction is too long, make it shorter. You can tell me one thing, you can tell me the other, but don't tell me both at the same time. I can't work out the contradictions is the sort of thing that the, the, the associate would scream at the crappy partner or after I write an article or a memo, don't just get rid of my name and substitute yours for mine. I wrote the damn thing, so leave my name on it. I mean, I realize every once in a while it matters and we have to put your name on instead of mine. But for the most part, if I did the work, why don't we just give me credit for it? It's, you know, it's an outrage that you just get rid of my name. So there are, there are a whole collection of things, if you sat down and thought about it, that you could write that the crappy partners do all the time and really ought not to. And um, that's kind of one thing you talk about um, in your new afterward is the generational differences in um, how, you know, partners and associates and different generations are responding to the curmudgeon. Um, So how did you kind of come into this role as amused and begrudging mentor? And what is your attitude towards this audience of younger mentees? Well, the genesis of the entire book was when I was on the road with a summer associate in the late 90s who had drawn something, maybe a deposition I was taking or something as her out-of-town experience with a partner. And the the summer associate said to me, your life must be so fascinating because 
it has such variety in it. The, the fields of law differ from case to case, and the facts differ from case to case, and the cast of characters differ from case to case, and there is nothing about your life that is repetitive. And, you know, over dinner or whatever, I said, are you kidding me? My whole life is repetitive. All I do is shorten sentences, and I shorten paragraphs, and I add topic sentences, and I get rid of the, the passive voice, and I do this, and I do this. And she said, boy, those things are all very true, and nobody has ever said it that simply and in that way. Don't you think it would be useful just to put together something that sort of explained these are the things that partners are looking for? And as a result of that, I wrote the memorandum from a curmudgeon, which, is, which was originally a standalone article and became the first chapter of the book. And then the book came out in 2006 when I had a bunch of other things added to it. But uh, – I don't think the curmudgeon sees himself as a mentor. I think the curmudgeon would say, mentor, what's this politically correct crap? Nobody needs to be a mentor. I don't want to be your mentor. Now come over here and I'm going to show you how you, we write a brief. We got to get rid of this and do this and do this. And I want you to take a deposition. And when you take a deposition, you should do it this way and watch out for this and don't do this. And kind of, even though he's a nasty old coot, you would learn at his knee because he's telling you everything that you need to know, to practice law. And it comes from a good place. It just doesn't come from a place viewing himself as being good. It just comes from his concentration on on the work, on the ultimate quality of what you're doing. Definitely. And um, thank you so much. And uh, like you said, the curmudgeon might not always be aware that he's being extremely helpful to the associates, but definitely giving a clear cut and helpful advice there. Is there anything else today that you would like to talk about or anything else the curmudgeon would like mentioned? Well, I will say that that uh, when the first edition of the book came out, my mother-in-law said that half the people who read the book, if they read the book before law school, would think law school sounds completely nauseating to me. I have no interest in going whatsoever. And the other half of the people who read the book before law school would say, well, this competitive environment sounds great to me. I really want to go into law school and the law because I would love to do this for the rest of my life. And that either way, whether they chose to go into law or not to go into law, I would be doing a public service because it's just seeing what your future is going to look like and better to know what your future is going to look like before it happens than to have wandered into it and and decide that you don't like doing it. So hopefully I'm doing some good with the book. Definitely. And um, thank you for coming on today. Where can our listeners reach you if they're interested in learning more about your work? I guess they could send me an email at mark.herman, M-A-R-K dot H-E-R-R-M-A-N-N at aon, A-O-N dot com. All right. Well, listeners, thank you for tuning in. You can purchase The Curmudgeon's Guide to Practicing Law at the ABA web store. Go to AmericanBar.org slash products. That's AmericanBar.org slash products. And the second edition is coming out soon. If you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.